we're so full of anxiety right now. We don't know who's going to be taken next. And, and it's just too much, you know, and there's nobody to turn to. You're listening to episode six of A Steep Road to Freedom, a limited series podcast from the ACLU of Ohio. We are taught that people are innocent until proven guilty, but really, we treat people as if they are guilty from the start. The pervasive use of cash bail compromises the integrity of the entire criminal legal system. It punishes the innocent while prioritizing criminalization over reintegration and rehabilitation. Our goal is to educate and mobilize the public to put an end to the state's reliance on cash bonds. I'm your host, Malikta. And I'm your host, Selena. This week, we're diving into the role of excessive bail in the current immigration and family separation crisis. One-third of the people in the U.S. immigration detention are locked up in county and city jails, and Ohio has the third highest rate of community arrests made by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. You may know them as ICE. Not surprisingly, this group accounts for one of the fastest-growing rates of incarceration. We've seen the traumatizing headlines detailing the plight of families forced to separate, the cruelty and deception of ICE stings, and the destabilizing force of our federal immigration policies. Now let's shed light on pretrial detention and immigration bonds. How are immigration bonds different than cash bonds in your local county? Are people who are undocumented afforded the same due process protections as the average American citizen? And what lessons, reflections, and organizing strategies from bail reform can serve to end the crisis of over-detention, over-incarceration, and over-deportation. This week's episode is sponsored by Black Lives Matter Cleveland, the Northeast Ohio chapter of Black Lives Matter, building local power to combat the violence inflicted on Black communities by the state. Follow them on Twitter at BLM underscore 216. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Before jumping into the episode, we wanted to give you some background. We wanted to preface this conversation by acknowledging one of the largest ICE deportation work raids occurred right here in Ohio. In June of 2017, an undercover ICE agent walked into a gardening store in Sandusky and lured workers with the offer of donuts and coffee to come outside. The ICE officer claimed to be a health inspector for the state. Once a critical mass of the employees had gathered outside, ICE agents arrested 114 people, some of whom were later released for being teenagers and U.S. citizens. At the time, this was the largest workplace raid in the history of our country. So Ohio isn't necessarily the first state that pops into my mind when we talk about the rampant issues with our federal immigration policies or even the expansion of ICE. The Sandusky raids were a crude awakening. We know from our ACLU colleagues doing work in this area that more than half of the individuals in immigration court proceedings are currently unrepresented, including the 84% of those who are held in pretrial detention. So, quick refresher. You recall that pretrial is the period between an arrest and the resolution of one's case. But in the context of the immigration crisis, the end of the case often leads to deportation. And similar to those held pretrial in our local jails, Ohio locks up thousands of immigrants unnecessarily every year, exposing them to the inhumane and overcrowded conditions in ICE detention centers. Mel, can you describe the difference between immigration bonds and the typical cash bond that we encounter at the local level? 
Yeah, so let's start with the location. If your loved one has been detained, you must go to the ICE deportation office to post bond, leaving many family members vulnerable to potential arrest and intimidation. And anyone who is currently undocumented cannot post bond. So is everyone detained by ICE eligible for an immigration bond? And, you know, if they have these funds, is there any sort of guarantee for a pretrial release? Is that even possible? So to your first question, not everyone is eligible. Some non-citizens are subject to mandatory detention and thus cannot get out of bond whatsoever, like those with prior criminal convictions. And bond hearings can take up to two to three weeks to even take place. Okay, so for those who are eligible, who's setting the bond? Is this occurring within the federal judicial system? Yep, and the initial bond amount will be set by the Department of Homeland Security and the Immigration and Custom Enforcement's District Director. The minimum bond amount starts at $1,500, and take note, these minimums have drastically risen since the Trump administration took office. So factors that could persuade a judge to set a bond beyond that amount depends on things like the length of time someone's lived in the U.S., any familial ties, criminal record, and a history of immigration violations. That's outrageous. But let's talk about the bond hearing itself, though. Do people have access to attorneys at this stage? From our observations, most people are not represented, especially those who are being held pretrial. Not to mention there's this habitual absence of a translator in the course of these proceedings. These are merely a few of the disturbing aspects of ICE enforcement and current immigration laws. Immigrant detainees don't have the constitutional right to a lawyer. Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure don't always apply when ICE agents investigate a target for arrest. And not to mention, there's no legal limit on the amount of time that someone could be held pretrial, and these bond amounts must be paid in full, not the usual 10%. So what if someone is able to pull together the money? Can they reclaim those funds once they show up for their court date? Reclaiming bond money is nearly impossible in the maze of state and federal bureaucracy. In 2016, we saw an all-time high of $200 million of unreturned bonds because of delayed hearings, of course the administrative burden of reclaiming these funds, and the understandably triggering nature of returning to local ICE offices. So what about bail bondsmen? Can the family of someone detained contract out with a bail bond agent? We know from an earlier episode that these types of contracts can be very exploitative. So bail bondsmen rarely make themselves available to immigrants because unlike criminal court, where a bondsman guarantees that he or she will pay the full amount if you don't show up back to court, immigration bonds are due in full at release, meaning people are forced to raise the entire amount of money themselves, which could be tens of thousands of dollars. There's so much more to unpack here. That's why Malikta sat down with Veronica Dahlberg from Ola, Ohio. Veronica is the founder and executive director. She was born in Canton, Ohio, and she's the daughter of Mexican and Hungarian immigrants. She has been an advocate in Northeast Ohio's Latinx and immigrant community for more than 20 years. Let's take a listen. You know, we started as a very informal group of women about 20 years ago, just wanting to help the community. It really began um, actually at the scene of a horrific accident at one of the uh, companies where a lot of immigrant work in Lake County. It was a tractor rollover where the individual was killed. And I met the co-founder of Ola right there, Gladys Figueroa. We were both on the scene and we said, wow, this has to stop. We have to do more to help our community. So we started Ola and our vision has really changed over the years. But what I would say a core part of what we do has always been to empower the Latino community, not to say that we are the voice of because we know our community has a voice. We just want to 
provide the leadership and the skills and the training to teach our community how to use their own voices and actions to create change and to improve our lives. So I remember when the Sandusky raids happened and Ohio was the ground zero of these like large-scale ICE community raids. Can you talk about Ola's response to that and how that event woke up the entire country? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was a shocker, although we had been trying to raise awareness of our deep concerns about the establishment of these two very active border patrol stations that operate within Ohio, one in Port Clinton, one in Erie, Pennsylvania, in addition to a very active ICE field office in Cleveland. So the combination of those factors and the fact that Ohio is an agricultural state, so we have all these rural communities with thousands of immigrant workers, you know, was a recipe for disaster. And in fact, the Detroit Free Press did an article showing that Ohio actually has the third highest rate of immigrant arrest by ICE. And so when the raid happened, we got the calls very early in the morning. We were able to mobilize quickly and get out there and connect with people that we already knew in the community. It was utter chaos. And at the time, we did not have any kind of bond program. So the bond program that Ola has today really was an outcropping of that terrible event. um, And it came out of necessity. That raid, it's still being felt today. I mean, we have an office in Norwalk now. We're still dealing with the ripple effect of the raid and how it impacted the families. And one of the biggest ways, besides separating the parents from the children and deporting, you know, many people from the community, was the financial impact, the economic impact on a group of people who are already living on the margins, doing farm work. So mm-hmm. let's say somebody gets, is surveilled, they're targeted by ICE, they get arrested and they get booked. What does that bail process look like? So the raid, the people were picked up, they were booked by the Border Patrol first. And then after a couple of days, they're transferred to ICE custody. And then they need to communicate with their family. So you got to start putting money in commissary. So if I want to put in $20 into the commissary so they could talk to their families, it's going to be $27, right? Because of the fees. So the fees got to be so excessive. Then you have to, you know, retain an attorney. Depending on the case, it's, you know, $1,500, anywhere to $5,000 or even more. And that usually has to be paid up front before the case goes to court. Then they're sitting in the detention center waiting for a bond hearing date. And um, that in itself, because of the backlog right now, is about three weeks that you're just sitting there just waiting for your court just for the bond. Then the judges in Cleveland are known for, again, exorbitantly high bonds. That's what they're known for. So the bonds are going, you know, there were a few $5,000 bonds, but most of them were 7500 to 20000 25000 And that is not 10%. You have to pay that whole amount. And again, this is just for the people who are eligible. Many people were not eligible and they were just summarily deported. If you don't have the bond money, there are some companies that will be happy to give you immigration bonds, but they charge enormous amount of interest, like 40%, and you have to agree to wear an ankle monitor. So the options are very limited. The other one that's even more complicated is if you have a charge like driving without a license, for example, and then you're picked up by the police, and then the police take you to jail, then they notify ICE. 
So what can happen there is ICE will pick you up and detain you before you even had your day in court on the driving without a license charge. They might deport you before you even had a chance to address that. And so what happens is you now have a warrant for your arrest that stays on your record because you didn't show up in court. Unless you have somebody very motivated that's able to notify the court that you were deported so you can attend. Or let's say you weren't detained and you're just going to court for your hearing. ICE has been waiting outside of the courtrooms to pick you up either outside or inside or a week after your court, but the bottom line is they're scouring those court dockets and matching them with a database. They call it Operation Crosscheck. And if they see that you have any glitch in your immigration pass, they will come and pick you up. What citizen power do we have in terms of the police relationship with ICE? I know in Moraine, their police chief said that he wouldn't work with ICE as closely. Is that something that we can pressure our police departments to do? Yes. Well, that with the Lorraine chief, that was a result of Ola's work. And the way that we did it there was we got everybody who had been impacted by when the police department was reporting people to ICE previously, we collected those stories We got the individuals who we could to come and speak. We arranged a meeting. We invited the chief to come, and then we gave him all these testimonials. And as a result of that, then he changed the policy, and we gave him some sample policies. But it was about creating that relationship with him. And that has always been Ola's way of doing things. First, we try to just establish that relationship with law enforcement because our community is terrified. And obviously, if you have a human trafficking victim or domestic violence or rape or victim of a crime, you want to be able to call the police. But if they're afraid of the police, they can't do that. So we always try to build that relationship. But unfortunately, at the same time, the administration is being very aggressive and trying to build their own relationship with law enforcement, you know, and kind of co-op law enforcement to be an arm of their zero tolerance anti-immigration policies. And so we're really in a competition. And what I've seen lately, which is very concerning, is that ICE is using local police departments as decoys now. So when they want to go pick somebody up at their house, they will send in the local police officer to knock on the door so that when people look out the window, And they have that trust of the police. They'll say, oh, it's the police. There must be something going on. Let me open the door and see what's up. And they do that. And then ICE comes around the corner and will grab them. So that is a new development that I'm very concerned about. And unfortunately, people now have to be aware that if the police is knocking on your door, you need to know that it could be ICE, you know, around the corner. ICE doing that is circumventing some of the legal considerations that would keep them from getting that person if they didn't use the police. It is because it's exploiting the trust that we as an organization have been trying to build with the police, with our community and saying, hey, the police, you know, let's build that trust relationship. Well, now they're exploiting it by using the police to get people to open their doors and things like that. If somebody is at risk of deportation from ICE or at risk of being surveilled and targeted by ICE agents, what can they do? What can their loved ones do? What can we as a community do to show up for that person? The first thing is they need to consult with an attorney and maybe even two or three attorneys to get a couple of opinions on what can be done. They can reach out to an organization, an advocacy organization like OLA, and we can see what can be done to help them take care of whatever situation they have. The other thing is, you know, there's a lot of know your rights information out there. However, 
these individuals who were stopped two weeks ago did try to exercise their rights and not open or roll down their car window all the way and and I smashed it open and pulled them out of the car. So sometimes, you know, when you're trying to exercise your rights, it could escalate situations. So when you're in your home, you are not required to open your door to anybody. And in fact, you know, you're seeing a lot of plain clothes people and you're seeing a lot of scams going on. So I think it's prudent that when somebody's knocking on your door and you don't know who it is, don't open it. Keep your doors locked. ICE will do whatever they can to get that person. So they could be waiting outside down the street. They could just walk up to your back door. We've seen so many scenarios. They can grab you at court or at work or when you're going to the store. And what can we do to support Ola? What can we do to support this community? Well, I think definitely support Ola. And if people want to like our Facebook page, because we've been putting a lot of action alerts on there when they've been urgent recently, um, the public was fantastic responding to action alerts and we were able to save somebody from a deportation. So that's one way to just help us when we need to call Congress or do visits or whatever and just respond to those. And then if people want to donate to Ola, we would very much appreciate it. The work that we do, we do for the families and children. We do it for justice. And Mm -hmm. we do it because it's the right thing to do in this country. You know, we can't live in a country that is just pulling people out of their homes and cars and locking them up. And, you know, this whole system is so unjust. And it's really, if you look at the deportations and detentions, 94% of the immigration deportations are from four Latin American countries. So this does disproportionately impact the Latino community. And when you look at foundation dollars, you know, less than 1% of foundation dollars go to Latino-led organizations. So we do need financial support. And we're still full of anxiety right now. We don't know who's going to be taken next. And, and it's just too much, you know, and there's nobody to turn to. You know, there's nobody to turn to to help. And our elected officials are just unavailable on this, completely unavailable. The immigration system depends on the cash bail system. We're addressing our immigration crisis with the same failed, harmful tools that we employ to handle pretrial detention. Mass incarceration has given ICE the blueprint of how to systematically detain people who are legally innocent. Money, more specifically cash bail, is the front door of mass incarceration. The use of money bond is part of a disturbing and overzealous immigration enforcement and deportation regime. We must end our reliance on cash bail in both our state and federal systems. We have to remember that immigrants are less likely to be represented during these bail hearings and far more likely to be held pretrial for extended weeks, even years before their first day in court. So as Veronica described, the human toll of this is brutal and significant. Pre-trial detention continues to separate people from their children and families, upending communities across the country. In some cases, these are young people who were brought here as children, asylum seekers fleeing persecution, and sometimes even permanent residents or U.S. citizens who shouldn't be removed at all. We must adopt bail reforms in the immigration space. And we must end the militarization of our border and champion new legislation faithful to the principles of due process and equality for all. We need to adopt progressive bail reforms we're seeing at the state level to apply in immigration courts. We need legal representation and judges to consider someone's ability to pay when setting bail. This podcast is a project of the ACLU of Ohio. Don't forget, rate, review, and subscribe. Again, we're your co-hosts, Malik Tamalaku and Selena Cumming. 
and this podcast would not be made possible without our village of amazing colleagues, Claire Chevrier, James Kazmatka, and Jeff Miller. Music and editing by Dan Rogan. Mix and mastering by Sean Rule Hoffman. Don't forget to follow us on social media. You can catch us on Twitter at ACLU Ohio and on Facebook and Instagram at ACLUOH. Check out our bill website at ohbillreform.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you.